Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. Welcome to tonight's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Brian Watt, morning news anchor for KQED Radio in San Francisco. Tonight, I am excited to be in conversation with Craig Melvin, news anchor on NBC's The Today Show. We're here to discuss his new book, Pops, Learning to Be a Son and a Father. Craig writes from the start of the book that it is not a memoir, but an investigation of a subject that happens to be personal. What we get is a poignant but often blunt story of fatherhood and the universal aspiration among men to be the best parents they can be. He takes us on his journey to reconciliation with his father, who has battled alcohol addiction. He tells us of the support he received from surrogate father figures, shares stories from fathers he interviews as part of his Dad's Got This series on the Today Show. So, before we begin... Let me remind the audience one more time that if you would like to ask us a question, please ask it in the chat or comment section. We'll try to get through as many questions as possible towards the end of this program. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's effort in making virtual programming, please visit CommonwealthClub.org. Now, let's get started. First of all, Craig Melvin, welcome. Brian Watt. Thank you for having me, and a, and a, big, a big thanks to the uh, Bernard Osher Foundation and the uh, and the Commonwealth uh, Club for for sponsoring tonight's event. Thank you all. Yeah, well, you know, it's cool to meet you because I feel like we actually have quite a few things in common. We both wake up early to do the news, uh, though I think your audience is a lot bigger than mine, and your audience can see you when they're doing the news. And I know that's a good thing. We're also both black men from the South. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and that is right up the road from Columbia, South Carolina, where Craig Melvin grew up. So um, thanks very much. It was it was good to meet Dell. And it is important that people see proof that you're a father. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, there's plenty of proof. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about this relationship with your father, you are investigating this relationship, at least at the start of the book. Why do you think your father was willing to participate in your investigation? Well, you know, it's a good question, but I think that my dad, um, I think like a lot of folks of, of his generation, you know, he's almost 70. And I think when you get to a point in life, when you realize you've got more years behind you than you do ahead of you, um, you start to, 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 to look at things a little differently. And, and my dad uh, is no different in that regard. Um, and I also think that, you know, a couple of years ago when he, he checked into rehab, um, that changed his worldview in a pretty dramatic way. And consequently, um, after that, he and I had a number of conversations where we talked about his story and how powerful it was and how, inspiring it was and and how uh we both thought some good could come of it and and so after a number of those conversations the sort of you know the stars just sort of aligned if you will um so i i think that's why he initially agreed to participate and i think you know um like myself he was reticent shall we say um 
and as we had our conversations, I mean, it, it was, you know, I interviewed my dad for probably about four and a half hours. And that took about, you know, four or five different sessions. And um, I think, Scratch that I know now um, that he found the, the, the process as cathartic as I found it. Cathartic. Well, I mean, you you do a really good job in this book, sort of laying that foundation of the way your father and probably my father were brought up. You know, the, the, the elders told you what they wanted you to know. They didn't talk about things they didn't want to talk about. And if you were a kid, you weren't really, really supposed to be asking questions about things you might have been curious about, but you kind of had a sense that you needed to not ask questions. So I imagine that that was a pretty hard thing to push through as 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 much as maybe both of you needed the catharsis. You know, my, he wasn't, my dad's not used to answering questions and, and not just because he is of that generation. Um, I just don't, you know, he's just not a guy that's that's an open book. You know, I mean, you and I are journalists. We ask questions. We engage in conversations. That, that that's that's the nature of what we do. And I think sometimes for people like us, we take for granted that's. I it, it's it's it, it it's it's counterintuitive for a lot of people, um, especially when you're talking about things of a a very personal and private nature things that are um, hurtful, emotional, sensitive. Like that's just not, that's not who he is. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was just, at first it was very weird because I had to decide early on whether I was going to approach this as Lawrence Melvin, you know, my father, uh, Lawrence Melvin's son, or was I going to approach it as, uh, purely a journalist, or whether it was going to be a combination of the two, and, uh -huh. and ultimately, I decided it would be beneficial for both of us if if I did not approach it as his son entirely, but I, I approached it as a journalist, and it helped. Quite frankly, it helped that I didn't know a lot. Like I, uh -huh. I there was just <laughs> there was so much I didn't know. I didn't have to fake the curiosity. Right. Interesting. We get a lot of visuals in this book on his alcohol addiction. Always a beer in one hand, a cigarette in the other. Drinking and driving, literally. DUIs. But there's actually a short passage in chapter two. I was going to get you to just read a minute of it. And it and in this moment, I feel like after kind of giving us a sense of what his alcoholism could look like, it's it's like you get why. Can you just, can you share that passage with us? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, chapter two. Page 42, yeah. Page 42, I'm going to start with my dad's refusal. Um, okay. Page 42. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, or you can start with um, a host of reasons. A host of reasons. That's right. Yeah. It's a good passage. Well, it's a good book. A host of reasons kept him from being the dad I wanted him to be, the dad I needed. He didn't set out to be a bad father. He didn't 
want to not be around, but in a way, he became a parent with both hands tied behind his back, hindered by his family history, his own parent shortcomings and dearth of resources, his lack of a good role model in his own father. There was the systemic and overt racism he faced as a black man of his generation, and there was the legacy of alcoholism and likely an undiagnosed underlying depression. Was his drinking in part an attempt to self-medicate? Possibly. My dad spent the better part of his life unhappy about various aspects of his life, and he found comfort and solace in alcohol. For most of his life, he was able to manage it to a certain extent until he couldn't. So there is a lot in that passage, but right there at the end, until he couldn't. What was the straw that broke the camel, camel's back? What? You know, my, my dad was, he was a mail clerk, third shift, uh, U.S. Postal Service for almost 40 years. And when you, and he worked the third shift because you make a, a few extra bucks uh, on that shift. And, and, and his, his work as a civil servant was the rung on the ladder to get us to the middle class. Uh, he didn't go to college. He spent four years in the military. Um, but he knew the importance of, of education. He wanted to make sure that, that, that me and my brothers went, went to school. And, and, and that was important to him. So he took a job that he didn't enjoy, by and large. Um, I mean, he was an assembly line worker for the better part of four decades almost. Um, and he did it for us. And we didn't fully appreciate it until we were much older, mind you. Um, but the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, was, was when he decided to retire. And when you, because when you work that ship, Brian, you don't, you don't develop a lot of hobbies or interests or friendships to cultivate because you're working at night, you're sleeping during the day. Um, and, and that, that's a hard life to live. And, and I, I know, I mean, I technically don't work the third shift. I work sort of the second and a half shift, if you will. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard for your body clock. And he did it for, almost 40 years. So he, he was a casual drinker uh, when he started in the military um, in his early 20s. And then sort of casual drinking became recreational drinking and then recreational drinking became crutch drinking and then it just became drinking, drinking. And, um, and when he retired, he didn't really have anything else to do. And, and, and part of what was keeping him sober and functional was the job he had to go to work and so you know and then all of a sudden when you don't have to be anywhere at a certain time um and you don't have anything else to do golf or tennis or church or whatever um it, people don't i don't think a lot of folks fully appreciate what that does to a, a person who's newly retired and, and so anyway my, my dad started to drink more and more and then we lost um, my niece, um, to pediatric cancer. She was three at the time when she died and that, that sent him into a, a, a spiral. Um, and, and so the, the drinking just, it got out of hand. And then all of a sudden he, he, as you pointed out uh, a few moments ago, there was a DUI and, and, and that was sort of the catalyst. That was the impetus, if you will, for change. I see. And you, I am kind of blown away because there, you know, there will be long passages where you talk about his drinking, about 
the fact that he was a drunk, about the way he smelled embarrassing you. And and I will lose sight of the fact that the man did work a full-time job. He worked a graveyard shift. He served in the military. And so he provided. I mean, and you mentioned this. He got you guys into the middle class. And I think that's what I think a lot of people don't realize is that there are a lot of people who really do manage alcoholism in some way. Well, most, most alcoholics, I mean, not just most, the overwhelming majority of alcoholics are functional alcoholics. Like they're not like, you know, uh, fall down, sloppy, embarrass the family drunks. These are, these are people who are holding down jobs. And, you know, I didn't realize until I started doing research for the book and interviewing my dad. My dad, toward the, the 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 latter part of his time at the post office, he would take his breaks and drive down to the corner store on his breaks and sit and pound like tall boys. I don't know. I don't know if tall boys are in San Francisco. I don't know if folks know what tall boys are, but they're the, they're the, the, the uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you call them a forty ounce. I, it might have been the forty ounce of the day. Um, and I'll be honest with you when I when I found that out, you know. I, I, I won't say I was more impressed, but but understanding his addiction and understanding how long he was grappling with it, um, I, I did um, probably develop more of an appreciation um, during the research for the book. Because, I mean, here is a guy that managed to not get fired. And, 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 and Brian, he was either drunk, hungover, or drinking at work. The last five, 10 years, the majority of the time, that's a feat. Yeah. So is this part of like seeing past this through this and all that he did in spite of this part of learning to be a son yourself? Yes. Um, You know, I've, I've said before, I think you can, I think you can be just as motivated by negative examples as you are by positive examples. And um, when I was younger, I I didn't always know what I wanted to be when I grew up or the kind of, you know, husband I wanted to be or dad I necessarily wanted to be as I got older into my 20s or early 30s. But I I did know, based on what I'd seen, I don't want to be my dad. I don't want to be anything like my dad. and, and that that motivated me um, early on, probably more in a negative way than a positive way. Um, but it was it was it was motivation. And so, but I I also think now is is you know I, I've got a seven year old that you just met, my son, and my four year old who I managed to to keep at the door. Um, I, I think that for me. A lot of a lot of my parenting now, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know. I don't know if it's unfortunate, but anyway, I think about being young and the dad that I saw and the impressions I had of him. And I'm I'm very because you know like I like to have a glass of wine or a glass of bourbon or beer occasionally, but I but I I, I think sometimes back to when I was younger and how a lot of my memories, scratch that, not a lot, most of my memories of my dad always having a drink in his hand and that that always being a part of our interactions and, and so I've, I've become um 
quite cognizant of that. Um, and well, you know, I mean, for good, for bad, whatever. Now, you know, granted, my son thinks that I have a coffee problem. He thinks that, I, <laughs> and I'm fine. I'm fine with him thinking that I have some sort of caffeine addiction versus the other. But you know, it's it's you know, each generation, um, each generation, Brian tries to do a little bit better, and and that's that's what I'm right. trying to do. And once you guys pushed through this to the place where you could talk openly, what would you say was the most valuable memory that you guys could share? Like something you could go back to that it helped both of you a lot to talk about. Do, do you mean when, when he, when, when he was struggling with his addiction or do you mean on the other side of it? On the other side, just, you know, when, once you guys got to having some real frank talks, about this. And, and obviously you've got that split between whether you're being the journalist or being the son. But I, but I, I just wonder if there's, I mean, you write vividly about helping him fix that Le Mans. You write vividly about that pipe you guys had to repair going out to the street and um, the mowing lawn thing. I mean, that, that, that was bonding time, but it sounds like it was pretty quiet. But is are there some like real episodes that you guys could look back at and go, you know, this is what I was thinking. This is what I was thinking. You know, one of our most recent, I mean, we. I'll give you two memories. I'll give you one on both sides. On, on this side, um, uh, post-recovery, um, when I went down to Statesboro, Georgia, and I write about it in the book, and 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 he had um, he'd been there for at that point six or eight weeks, and we had tried um, rehab before to no avail, and and I, I get there, I, I just I could fly in for, because of work, I could only fly in for a day or two, and I get there, and he meets me at the door, and he, he gives me a big hug, huge hug, and we're not we're not big huggers in, in my family. And he's crying and I'm crying and, and he gives me an envelope. Um, and there's a letter in the envelope that he's written. And it's essentially an explanation, if you will. Um, it, it is my father in his own words, writing about how he came to be the man that, that, that he was. Um, he writes about, you know, his, uh, his regrets and his hopes, and he he puts it all on paper. And you know, at that point, I'm 40 years old, Brian. I, well, actually, at that point, I'm 39. And my father had never written me a letter, uh, so um, that was um, that was a turning point for us. Um, and that sort of marked, if you will, this sort of new chapter in our story. Before that, I, you know, I. I don't know. I mean, there, there were, I, I would contend that one of the, and he might disagree with this, but one of the most salient memories that I have, I was probably 24, 25. No, I was 25. I was 25 because, and I write about it in the book, but, you know, my dad at, at that point, you know, he struggled with alcohol and then he picked up gambling. Um, and, and, and for folks who aren't familiar with addictions, those are the two worst that you can have simultaneously. Like you can't, you can't be addicted. I mean, gambling and, and drugs and alcohol, it's, that's a dangerous recipe. So anyway, I digress. 
but he um so he he had developed his gambling uh habit video poker back in south carolina if you recall in the you know 90s it was it was quite the scourge and he had squandered essentially his life savings and you know the apple doesn't fall far from the tree with regards to addiction and and just bad habits in general and in my mid 20s um i i you know I, I drank but not you know not like he did but i picked up gambling to the point where i had you know i was earning you know i was doing the evening news in my mid 20s in columbia south carolina i was earning a pretty good wage and when I was 25, I went to Vegas three times in one year. I remember it. Um, it wasn't to see Cirque du Soleil, I guess. It was not. It was not okay. to see Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> and um, I had made some pretty bad choices. And, and I, to the point where I, I bought my first house at the age of 23. I was very proud of it. It's a beautiful house in downtown Columbia. And, and um, my dad was over one weekend. And um, I, I, I needed a few bucks. I had to borrow money. And I, I didn't, I was too proud to ask my mother or a friend. And, and, um, I had to ask my dad and I had to explain to him what was going on. And, and uh, my dad being my dad, um, used as few, uses as few words as possible, um, to explain why my behavior was unacceptable. And and I knew at that point that uh, my dad wasn't just preaching a sermon like he had he had lived the sermon like he knew uh, from from whence he was speaking and 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 so that was it not to sound you know why not you know I I don't I mean I've been to Vegas since then but never n- nothing like that um, yeah. and that was it that's uh, those are the two memories that stick out. Uh, they sound like pretty valuable memories. Um, there, There's actually another passage that I thought would be really helpful for people to hear. Um, this is actually in the introduction um, on page eight. And, I, I, you know, to me, this is the exclamation of this book. Um, but you got inspired to celebrate fatherhood. And can you just... Uh, Give us a little bit of that right there. Yeah, I will. This is the this is the introduction of the book. Um, bottom of page eight. Fathers need to be celebrated. I've been moved by so many of the dads I, I, I meet. Their eloquence and emotion. Men don't generally talk about what we do as husbands and fathers. It's it's sort of in the nature of manhood not to, at least traditionally. We don't talk about our kids who are sick or vulnerable, who are gay or trans, who have challenges, who are excluded by other kids for whatever reason. We don't talk a lot about the satisfactions of raising our children, the pure joy. That's just not something that most men do. My dad barely talked, period. But the dads in our stories we're laying it all out and, for, and, and forging deep emotional connections with their children and with other fathers. At the same time, without a lot of fuss or self-pity, they were taking care of what they thought needed to be done. Like generations 
of American fathers before them, including Lawrence Melvin, who, despite his drinking problem, had one of the strongest work ethics I've ever known. Now, it sounds like, based on what I read, that you were inspired to celebrate fatherhood. It, the it, it sort of started when you did a visit to Salinas Valley State Prison for a story about a program for incarcerated fathers. Um, what happened? It, it, you know, that's here in California. It's it's down the road from San Francisco. So, what happened? It what did you see at Salinas Valley State Prison that really gave you a window into fatherhood? You know, it's it's funny because you know we think about. I think well, I shouldn't say we, but I think a lot of folks think about fatherhood in the traditional sense. Um, and a producer, like most of the, the really good stories that I've done over the course of my career, uh, a producer talked me into traveling from New York to California uh, to, to, to the prison to do a story on a, a summer camp. Um, and that's an oversimplification of what it is. But, but these, are, these are men who are incarcerated for an extended period of time. A lot, most of these guys aren't getting out anytime soon. I mean, these aren't guys that have, that have written bad checks. And um, they're sentenced. And after a few years, they all have children, but after a few years, they're given the opportunity because of good behavior on the inside to spend a week with their children at a summer camp. And it's, it's a traditional summer camp, arts and crafts and games and um, and, and some sports and, you know, and, you know, the kids come for eight hours in a day. They travel to the prison on a bus in about a dozen or so, maybe two dozen, somewhere between 12 and 24. But they, they travel to the prison during the day and, and obviously a, a, an environment that's uh, observed and, um, and guarded. But they get to interact with their dads. And then at night, they go back to a campground. And they spend the evening with other kids who are similarly situated. They are children of, of incarcerated men by and large. So anyway, a producer talks me into to going out for the story. I am quite skeptical uh, because I know the Today Show audience, or at least I thought I did. And I did not think that this is a story that would resonate with our audience. Uh, men who were um, convicted of doing terrible things and all of a sudden, um, here we are sort of showcasing them as, as fathers. So I get out there. And at this point, it's also important to note at that point, Brian, I, I, my son was probably, oh, let's see, he would have been three, maybe four. Um, and my wife would have been pregnant with our daughter. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. And so my view of fatherhood at that point. And so I'm having these conversations with these guys who are just, they're like us, you know, they're, they're, you know, I don't, I don't know much about your history, but I would imagine there was probably a time when you were younger where you, you went left and had you gone right. Me, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Um, and I know for, for, for damn sure in my twenties, I, I did some stupid stuff. Um, and, and here were, here were some men who had made some really bad choices. Uh, or in a couple of, a couple of cases, one bad choice, but they made some bad choices and, but they'd had children 
and there was one gentleman I, I, I was talking to him on the yard away from away from the rest of the group but he had his his son there with him and I said to him um I said well what would you say to those who are watching this or listening to this who would contend because of what you did and he had robbed a number of banks and and he 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 been involved in a number of armed robberies and I said well, what would you say to folks uh who who would say you don't deserve to have a week a summer a summer camp with your kids at the taxpayer's expense what would you say to those people and without missing a beat he said and at this point he's got tears in his eyes and I've got tears in my eyes he said you know what they might be right I don't deserve it but my kids do you know, my, my, my kids didn't do anything. Um, and if we're serious about breaking the cycle, um, then it doesn't really make much sense to, to deprive my children of the right to spend time with their dad. Because kids of the incarcerated, they need kids, they need parenting, fathers too. So it, it turned into a, it was a, a classic example of how going into a story, um, if you if you're truly objective and truly unbiased, um, I think you can you can tell a powerful story. I sorry, I'm I'm a little paused because um, you know that that's a, an emotional moment in the book, and I think it's it sounds like also a moment when you were realizing that fatherhood is kind of hard for everybody. It is, and and in our traditional definitions of it, be like it's not a. You know, like I've got a wife and, and two kids and, you know, we, we sort of live this, you know, it's sort of this perfect life. And, and the more you talk to folks, the more you, the more, at least I realize I'm an anomaly. Like most dads, like it's, it's blended families and, and, and dads who are, are struggling with a, a variety of things, moms who are struggling with a variety of things, kids with special needs. Um, it's, it's a, like everyone's dealing with a lot. And one of the things that I discovered during the course of the book, it's everyone's dealing with a lot. We're all climbing mountains, but a lot of folks don't want to talk about the climb. And, and, and there's power in talking about the climb. Um, I I think there's a, a a brotherhood um, that, that could be valuable. Uh, it, it, if if more of us were talking about the struggles that we all have, uh, because there are very few people you start you start talking to other dads around the country in the series that I do for the Today Show called Dads Got This, I, I get to crisscross the country and I get to talk to a bunch of dads who are overcoming a just just myriad obstacles, and you realize pretty quickly we're all dealing with something like like there's no there's no perfect scenario. Is there is there like a lesson or two that you you learned from one of those dads from dads got this that that you know you've applied directly? I, I you know not trying to stump you here, but I'm just wondering if like you know you come away from something and go you know there's a common thread. I wouldn't say there's 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 necessarily one lesson from one story, but there's a common thread throughout. Um, the, the dozens of dozens of stories I've done. Where I, I think, and what, what, how old are your kids? 
Um, I have a nine-year-old and a four-year-old. I have a nine-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl. Yeah, you've got young kids. I knew you had. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm finding my way. And one of the things I've discovered is we're all looking for ways to connect with our son or our daughter, and it takes a while to figure out what that connection is. And there was a group of a group of dads down in South Carolina. Um, it was actually the first story I did for the series called Dance Dads. And these were these guys that um, that did the makeup, did the hair, learned the routines, like built the sets for their daughters and their weekend like dance expositions because for whatever reason, the moms um, couldn't do it. And the dads, none of these dads ever imagined this is how their weekends would look when they were fathers, mind you. Um, but they they did it because their daughters wanted them to do it. And and one of the things I've discovered as a father, as a journalist covering this beat on fatherhood, there's not a lot that a father won't do for their child. Um, there's, there's just not. And, and you don't fully understand it or appreciate it until you become a dad. Um, like my, my daughter yesterday, you know, we're in the kitchen Sunday afternoon um, it was about three thirty, and we were I, we just moved, and we were unpacking boxes, and and she saw her some finger polish, some some Elsa Anna finger paint or something, but she wanted me to paint her nails, and you know that's not really my forte, uh, Brian, uh, but damned if I wasn't painting nails at three thirty four o'clock <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon, and you know I there you know paint. And every nail's a different color. And oh, yeah. um, you didn't have to paint your own nails, did you? No, no, no. I didn't. Okay. I've done that before. I didn't have to do that yesterday. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but no. I mean, you know, not that there's anything wrong with it, but it is, you know, like no judgment, no judgment. I'm, no, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm expecting that moment to come uh, once my daughter discovers nail polish. You know, it, it, it may be that she's got a color in mind for my nails. You mentioned that you've forgiven your father uh, for how things went. You've done it for him and you've done it for you. Is this really important to everyone who has struggled with this relationship? Like a tough relationship with their father? Forgiveness, you mean? Yeah. I think so. I, you know, I, I, I do. But, but I, you know, and I... I didn't forgiveness for me. It wasn't about my dad, and it also took. You know, I'm a I'm a, I'm a long believer, firm long believer in, in therapy. Um, I had to forgive my dad, not for my dad. I had to forgive my dad for me. I had, I had to. I had to get that burden off my shoulders, that monkey off my back. So it, it wasn't it, it, the forgiveness wasn't about giving him a pass. It, it was about helping me move move forward in my life. I I I also think, and this is one of the the the, the reasons, if not the impetus, for writing the book. When you have children, you view fatherhood through a different lens. I was hard on my dad for a long time. And then you have kids 
and you realize it's not easy. And, and, and there's no playbook. Like we're all doing the best that we can. And, and I had some decent examples. And my father, not to give away too much of the book, but my dad, I mean, you know, the first line of the book is, you know, my father was born in a prison in West Virginia. Now my grandma ran liquor, ran numbers, like she was she was a badass in the thirties. And 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 so my, my dad was a jail baby and grew up with that burden. He grew up not knowing who his father was. And then all of a sudden, you know, thirty years later as a kid, and and then society expects that he's going to be Heathcliff Huxtable. Well, how 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 is that a realistic expectation? And but that but but that's what I did. That's what we do. As I said, we expect people to be certain things without the benefit of seeing those things up close. Um, and you know, and that's what that's what we did with my dad. That's what I did with my dad. And and part of the the reason I wrote the book was to let my dad know. Um, that I get it. All is forgiven. He was doing the best that he can. He was doing the best that he could. I'm doing the best that I can. You're doing. Where no, no one wakes up on a Tuesday morning. No mother. No father. No husband. No wife. Like you know what? I'm gonna be a shitty parent. I'm, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be a. I'm gonna be a mediocre spouse. Like that's, you, you, people don't do that. We we you 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 behave. In, in the way that, that you have, have experienced behavior, if that makes any sense. So anyway, I I just, it, part of the reason I wrote the book was to let my dad know that uh, that all all is all is right. And how is he dealing with all that? I mean, is he is he forgiving of himself now? Well, I, I can't speak to that, actually. That's a really good question. I don't know if he's forgiven himself. I would certainly hope so. Um, but he, it's funny and you'll, you'll discover this one day. If I'm lucky, I will as well. Grandparents are different from parents. You know, my, my dad has six grandchildren now. And and when we see him interact with his grandchildren, my younger brother and I were like, who is this dude? Like, there's no, there, there's, there's no resemblance. Like we don't even recognize the father. Versus the grandfather, and um, which is good, you know. I mean, he's fully engaged in in, in the lives of his of his, his grandchildren, um, and I, but I think he there's a part of him that's trying to make up for lost time, which is great. You know, he FaceTimes now and he calls, and you know, five years ago he didn't have a cell phone, so <laughs> it's come a long way. So with your own kids. You know, th- this is an this is an interesting place for fathers, fathers of young children who are growing up in a world where, you know, there's there's really a lot. Like your kids have a good dad, an upstanding dad. You know, he's a busy guy. You know, maybe he's missing getting ready for school and breakfast. I certainly miss that. In I try to help out during the work from home period, but for the most part, um, you know, we're we're solid. We're able to provide, maybe even provide a little bit more. Your father is now very engaged with them. There's a balance to be struck, 
between um, giving them everything, having them not want for anything, but also uh, them being able to face some hardship, to overcome some challenges. Like, do you find yourself trying to navigate that space? No, no, no I'm not navigating. I'm feeling miser- miserably in that regard. <laughs> I meant to say trying to navigate. I didn't say you were pulling it no, off. No, I'm not. No. I'm, I, I mean, I try on good days, but no, no. I mean, I think, you know, I think unfortunately as a society, there's a tendency to overcorrect, you know, the pendulum uh-huh. swings from one way to the other. And, um, no, my, my, my there was a, a, a few month period about a year or two ago before, before the pandemic, and my son had developed a Greek yogurt, um, habit where he didn't even like, like Faye. He wanted Chobani. And oh Lord! Wow. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That, you kind of hate to say it, but it's—I mean, it's almost not middle class problems; it's upper middle class problems. Oh <laughs> yeah, no, no. It, you know, and my wife and I have had these conversations because, at the end of the day, I think what we all want is to to rear children who are resilient, who are capable right. of of climbing the mountain that we talked about earlier, or climbing a mountain, uh, any mountain for that matter. And I, I do worry, and not just about my kids. I think a lot of a lot of folks, you know, I, I mean, we, you know, we're not struggling, and you're not struggling. Like a lot of a lot of folks of 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 my generation who grew up, you know, we were barely middle class, and then all of a sudden you get a good job, and you 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 find the perfect woman or, or, or husband, and you, you get married, and they got a good job, and all of a sudden you're earning a good wage, and you, you have access to things that your parents don't have access to. And you want to, you know, the, the, the nature of, I think I would argue the nature of humanity is to, you want to provide better for your offspring than your parents provided. And, and like most things in life, we've, we overdo it. We overdo it. Uh, it looks like you're looking at some, maybe some questions, B. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm checking out. I know the questions are, are about to start rolling in because we're certainly getting to that portion. You know, this is a good conversation for me anyway. I mean, since you believe in therapy, it's, 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 it's just, honestly, it's good for me to talk to you because my sense is that we might go to bed around the same time each night if we're lucky and wake up around the same time every morning in order to do our jobs. That makes us very, very different dads from... um, But you know what? It does. But I would contend, and I had this conversation with uh, Carson Daly, a colleague and a friend of mine a couple years ago. We're all sacrificing something. Every father is sacrificing something. You're, You're either sacrificing time... You're sacrificing, maybe it's money. Maybe you can't provide for your, your kids the way that you'd like, or or maybe you're divorced and maybe, you know, that, but we're all sacrificing something. What you have to do is get to a point where you accept the sacrifice and you accept whatever you're sacrificing and you figure out, you know, what? okay, yeah, I'll sacrifice this, but I can do this. So for me, it's time. And I realize I'm going to miss I'm going to miss some stuff because of the job, because of the travel. So I sacrifice quantity, but I can focus on quality. So, yeah, I'm, I may not be there for all of it, but when I'm there, 
Um, we're gonna we're gonna have some amazing memories, and and this wretched device, this cell phone, um, is not is not going to be front and center. I'm going to be present emotionally and physically. We're gonna take great vacations, um, because I'm not gonna be able to to be there for, you know, all of the gymnastics or all of the soccer games. Right, right. All right. Well, we do have uh. The questions, as I promised, I told you people were uh, watching and listening. They are coming in. So let me ask you, um, uh, on behalf of Yvette, Yvette wants to know, what did you learn that surprised you about the challenges black men face during your dad's era versus the advantages of access that you now have? That's a good question. I, I, I think that Going back to part of our earlier conversation, you know, my they just didn't have as many examples. There was not the benefit of, you know, TV or if there was television, the way we were portrayed back then certainly wasn't um, wasn't favorable, shall we say? And I think that's being diplomatic in in in, in TV and in film and now there's social media. So I think. I think, and then even surrogate examples. Like I had, a, I had a lot of surrogate examples, like uncles and teachers and coaches, and even you know, in those years when my dad wasn't present, I had other folks who filled in the void. My dad and I, that generation just didn't didn't have as many of those, um, and I think I think that that made it even more difficult. I, it, it really is, not to belabor the point, but you know, if you can see it, you can be it. And if, if, if you can't see it, and if you've never seen it, if you don't see it, it is wholly unrealistic and wholly, not in the biblical sense, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly unrealistic to expect that men can be something and do things that they, have, that they just haven't seen. And, and that's what I was expecting of my father. Um, and not, and not, just, not, not just me. That's what society was expecting. That's what my younger brother, my older brother, we all expected my dad to be something that and and that he hadn't seen. And then, oh, by the way, he was hobbled by a disease that we didn't fully appreciate until, I would argue, we didn't fully appreciate until five, ten years ago. Think about how we used to talk about alcoholism or drug addiction, you know. Yeah. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a disease. It wasn't a sickness. It was a weakness. Right. Like you couldn't get that monkey off your back. Well, that's, yeah, you're just lazy. That's just, you right. have a lack of discipline. Well, not, you know, we, 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 we do better when we know better. And now we know better. And, and so it's just a, that's a long answer to Yvette's question. That's why I don't do a lot of these things. <laughs> it's all right. I'm going to ask you a question. Um, Another one that I, I think you got to, but it, I'll, it'll be a check back in to make sure you're comfortable. But this uh, Pratham, and I hope I'm saying your name right, as a journalist who hosts many shows and has many commitments, how have you been able to find the delicate balance between family and career? Now, it, sound, it sounds like you being present, no cell phone, good vacation. That sounded like a good answer to that question. But I want to know if you feel like you have found that. No, 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 no. I try. Okay. I haven't found it. I, I haven't found it. And, and I think um, it, it's funny because I've, I've gotten a question a fair amount. Um, 
You know, I think part of it for me is we came of age. What you, you? What are you like? Forty? What early forties? I'm guessing here. Oh uh, man, you are being so kind. I I really do appreciate it. Uh, I I might as well just come clean, man. I'm 53. Oh man, black don't cry. My God. <laughs> all right, all right. Thank you, thank you. But you know, it's it's funny because we came up, you know, through the professional ranks before social media, and I also think before this. Awareness, if you will, that work-life balance was important. And I, I, I prided myself early on in my career of being the guy that always said yes. I would work that 16-hour uh-huh. shift and I'd work weekends. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't get married until later in life or have kids until later than a lot of my friends. I think as a result of that, because I was always working. Even now, I, I don't, I, unfortunately, I don't probably have as many good friendships as, as a lot of my, my peers um, because I work more than I should because there is this, this deep abiding fear no matter um, how successful society thinks that you are that someone could come along and take it away, take it, uh-huh. take it from you. You know, or there's somebody over the shoulder, that shoulder, and they're going to outwork your uh-huh. hustle. And so you feel like you've got to always go at 90 miles an hour. Right. Um, and I still feel that. And as, as much as it drives me and as much as I would contend, it's probably been um, a, a decent reason for my success. It's hurt me. It's hurt me. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I don't hold myself up as the uh, the best example of the work life balance, and I, I don't. I, I I I work. I'm a firm believer in meditation. I, I use an app called Headspace uh, to try and, ch- and check it at the door. I try not to bring it home with me, but over the past year, especially, it's been hard to do that. Like it's it's hard not to bring. Um, a lot of what we cover on a daily basis. It's hard not to bring it home with you. There's an interesting question from Raquel. Parenting can be all-consuming. Is it important to maintain outside relationships and hobbies, etc., to have a sense of autonomy outside of one's role as a parent? No, it's not just important. It's paramount. And I didn't, mm. I didn't fully appreciate it until a few years into my marriage. Um, no. Because, you know, if... If it, it, it depends, you know, it depends on your job. But when you have jobs like like my job is all consuming, like it's just like I'm never off. You know, it's twelve uh-huh. hours a day. Um, it's an all consuming job. And and what what was starting to happen was I was going to work, I was coming home, I was with my wife, I was with my kids, and that was it. I didn't. I would. I, I jog. I'm a, I'm a bit of a runner. Uh, I like to work out. That was it. Um, and my therapist a couple of years ago was like, what, what, what do you, what do you do for fun? I was like, what do you mean? Like, what do you do for fun? I was like, oh, you know, I hang out with the kids. She's like, that's not fun. That's parenting. What do you do for fun? I was like, what do you mean fun? Like, what's, what is this? What is this fun you speak of? And she was like, well, what are your hobbies and interests? But I remember thinking, right. I was like, well, I, I guess I don't, I mean, I guess I'm like my dad. I don't really. Interesting. And and so I had a bunch of buddies that played golf. And so I picked up golf and 
Uh, and then at the beginning of the pandemic, my wife started playing tennis. So I started playing tennis. I used to play basketball. So I play some pickup basketball, but yeah, no, you, you have to have an identity outside of father or mother or spouse. Otherwise you'll, you'll lose your mind or, or the job. Like, you know, a lot of, I would contend most folks are, are, are really defined by what they do for work. And I, I've had to struggle with that too. Like you can't be. Because what happens when you get fired? And that's what happens to all of us, you know. At some point, you get fired. Let, let's change the topic. I don't want to think about being fired right now. So I'll just go on to the next question, um, which I actually think is a really good one too, from Crystal. What kinds of conversations should partners have with each other before deciding to have kids? Any tips for talking to your partner about raising children? You know, I think – and we had these conversations. Um, I think you want to talk about the kind of parent you would be hypothetically, should you become, you know, I mean, obviously not on the first or second date, but, you know, you're dating somebody that's getting serious and, you know, you both want to have children. You want to talk about the kind of parents you want to be. And because I think a lot of parents struggle with, I mean, there's this push and this pull. And especially if you were in a relationship, you know, my wife, um, you know, my wife is, is white. Um, she grew up Catholic and Polish. I'm black. I grew up Southern Baptist and like we, we grew up, we were different. And, and then all of a sudden you get married and it's not just, you know, you're having children, but you've got this meshing of families and cultures and there, there were obstacles to be overcome. And, but we've, we've, you know, we've been very good about having those conversations um, but the important thing is to actually have the conversations. Like a lot of right. people, I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, we'll have kids and, you know, we'll just figure it out. It'll be fine. And then you realize you have children and problems that already existed are exacerbated because conversations right. weren't had. Question from Nicole. What was the moment for you? Or has there been a moment where it really clicked for you the impact of raising the next generation? Mm. God, that's man. These get, the Bay Area questions are, are these are better questions than I usually get. It would be nice if people didn't read as much. I it, an aha moment with regards to rearing the next generation. I won't say there's an aha moment, uh, Brian, but I, I would say that there there are moments. Every week where I, I, I realize that as, as my kids get older, and you'll see this too, um, like you can't, you can't dial it in. Like they, they ask questions that require legitimate thought. Like they engage in, my son especially, like he is legitimately um, intellectually curious. Like he'll ask a question, you'll respond. And he'll ask a follow-up and then you'll respond and he'll ask a follow-up to the follow-up. And, uh -oh. and, 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 and then you find yourself like, well, th th no, that gets a Saturday morning at, at like seven thirty. Like I'm not, I'm not here for your, your existential conversation. <laughs> but there, I mean, there's a part of you that's proud, you know, especially as a journalist, but there's, there's another part of you that's like, you know what, when we were kids, Parents would say because I said so, and you read the parent books and they're like, oh, no, you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to answer all the questions. Um, 
but it no, there no aha. There there hasn't been an aha moment. There there are moments where, and it's funny because a lot of it's captured. As much as I was reeling against this contraption, um, a lot of it's like videos and texts my wife will send when I'm not present of things that he has done or said. Like for instance, um, a couple of weeks ago he started summer camp, and he's only seven. So, you know, he's, he likes to swim, but he's not big on diving. He's deathly afraid uh-huh. of it. And then um, some folks talked him into joining this dive team. And now he's all about dive. It's all he wants to do. And, uh-huh. and so in, in that story that's been developing over three weeks, in that story, it's, it's, there's this theme of facing your fears. And, and, and that's... And that, that, you know, as a parent, you like, that makes you proud. Um, and, and so there, there are moments like that where you realize, okay, well, maybe, maybe I'm not screwing it up. You know, maybe, maybe the kids are, or maybe the kids going to be all right. Well, we will let that be the last audience question that uh, you answer. And we want to thank the audience because there were a lot of great questions. But before we officially wrap, there's a tradition within Forum here to ask all of our speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? We're pretty excited to hear your answer to that, Craig. 60 seconds. Oof. I, I know this is going to perhaps sound trite, um, especially considering what I do for, for work. I think in this day and age, especially one of the things we can all do to change the world is to be a bit more discerning in terms of um, our um, our avenues for information, and and by that I mean, you know, and I'm not I'm not here to reel against social media. Um, or cable news of which I'm a part. Um, but there's, there, we live in a time in which there's so much talk about, you know, truth, um, and what is true and what's not, what's opinion and what's not. I, I think we would all be better served if everyone, um, everyone was a bit more skeptical of what they read, of what they saw, of, of what they heard, um, and they considered the source. Because the reality is, and you know this very well, Brian, um, if, if you can't agree on an established set of facts, then everything else becomes problematic. And that's where we are. Like, you know, someone reads something on Facebook because it's been shared a couple thousand times and they assume that's fact and they don't realize that's someone's opinion. And then they watch me at, you know, 7.10 in the morning and it's like, oh, I, you know, like Craig Melvin and the Today Show and it's, oh, it, it's, so we, we, we have to, we have to traffic in truth and, and celebrate fact. Um, I think that if we all did that, especially in these times, we would all be better served. Craig Melvin, thank you very much for joining me at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. 
This is uh, the moment when everyone would be applauding if we were in person, and I'm sure everyone is doing that little thing. Um, I want to remind our audience that Craig's book, Pops, Learning to Be a Son and a Father, is on sale now. A special thanks to Marcus Bookstore in Oakland, California, for partnering on tonight's program and to the Bernard Osher Foundation for generously supporting it. If you would like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's effort in making virtual and in-person programming, please visit thecommonwealthclub.org and uh, thecommonwealthclub.org. I'm Brian Watt. Thank you very much and stay safe. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.